G'day, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you today at the book of Esther, chapters 1 to 5. Can I encourage you to have a Bible open, please? We're going to read large chunks of Esther. Let's pray. We'll ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, do please help us now to understand these first five chapters of the book of Esther. Help us to think well about how to apply them to our lives as Christians. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the evening. It was about 10 years ago. I was having dinner at my parents' place and an old friend of my dad's was there. Now, my parents are excellent parents and nice people, but they're not Christians. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't like that I'm a Christian. And they certainly don't want me embarrassing them by talking about Jesus in front of their friends. My dad's friend wasn't a Christian, but he'd had some, um, some ill health, some sickness. I guess he was a bit worried. And so during the dinner, he asked me a question about Jesus, about why I think Jesus is real. There I was. All eyes were on me, beseeching me. Please don't embarrass us with your religious nonsense. So what did I do? I dodged the question, made a joke. Dinner wasn't ruined. My family weren't embarrassed. Everyone was happy. Except that a little while later, my dad's friend died. As far as I'm aware, he hadn't put his trust in Jesus. He he probably didn't know any Christians except for me. He'd asked me about it. He'd asked me about Jesus, and I didn't give him an answer. I wonder, was that my moment? Was that my opportunity to serve God, to work with him? If I'd answered the question, if I'd started a conversation, if I'd been bold and brave, could that have been his chance to hear about Jesus and be saved? Was that his one chance? Was I his one hope? Was, was that my moment? We'll never know. Because I wimped out. Friends, today we start this short three-week series on the book of Esther. Let me start off by giving you a little bit of background. The Jewish people, they had been through what can only be described as a genocide. In battles from 597 to 586 BC, they were conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And nearly all of the Jews, hundreds of thousands of them, were slaughtered. And uh, of the few remaining survivors, most of them were taken away from the land of Judea, from the city of Jerusalem. They were, they were exiled from their land and taken into Babylon. Nearly 50 years passed with the Jews in exile. And then, in 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire was defeated by the Persian Empire. The Persians were the most powerful empire the world had ever known. Now, they ruled over an area that stretched from modern Sudan in Africa all through Europe all the way to modern Pakistan. Uh, 
when the Persians took over, they allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. You can read about it in the books in the Bible called Ezra and Nehemiah. And then back in Jerusalem, with the help of prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, the Jews sought to re-establish life in the Promised Land. They set about rebuilding the temple, also the, the walls of the city of Jerusalem. In 486 BC, so about 50 years into the Persian Empire, a king named Xerxes came to the throne of the empire. Back in Israel, the local authorities had been complaining against the Jews, accusing them of rebelling against the empire. And King Xerxes, he ordered that work on the Jerusalem temple had to stop. It, it was an awful time for the Jews, a time when God seemed to be absent. Where was God when Babylon defeated and destroyed them? Where was God now that Xerxes had forbidden them to rebuild their temple? Many people wondered, has God given up on us? Where is he? And many people gave up on God. Which brings us to the story of Esther. Our story takes place in the city of Susa. Now, Susa is a major city in the Persian Empire. It's 483 BC, three years into King Xerxes' reign. Um, historically, we know that King Xerxes was planning a war against Athens, against the Greeks. And so he, he gathers together all his allies and his, his, his vassals and he has a massive feast, uh, a kind of a war council to try to win their loyalty for battle. Have a look with me. Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. At the end of the war council, Xerxes held a feast for the citizens of Susa to thank them for their help. At the feast, he decides that he's going to put his wife, Queen Vashti, on display to show everyone how, how pretty she is. He calls her in, but she refuses to come. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the, when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Now the king is embarrassed, He's angry, so he takes advice and he decides that he's going to banish the queen from her position. Historically, uh, we know that Xerxes then headed off to war with, uh, with Greece. Historians tell us it didn't go well. It was a foretaste of things to come with the upcoming Greek empire. But, but a few years later, um, Xerxes is back in Susa and uh, we pick up the story again. After taking some more advice, Xerxes decides on a plan to choose another queen. 
a whole heap of uh, pretty virgins from the empire are conscripted and they all become part of Xerxes' harem. Uh, Xerxes will have sex with all of them. Uh, he'll decide which one pleases him most and he'll make her the new queen. Which brings us in our story to our main characters, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai and Esther are Jews. But they didn't return to Jerusalem with the other Jews when they were allowed to return some 50 years previously. Uh, they, along with many people, chose to stay where they were in the Persian Empire. It's a little bit like today with the, um, with the re-establishment of the nation of Israel. Uh, many Jews have gone to Israel, but many haven't. Many of them remain scattered throughout the world in what they call the diaspora. Uh, let's pick up the story in chapter 2 and verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Well, beautiful Esther is conscripted into the king's harem, halfway through verse 8. Esther also was taken to the king's palace. On the advice of Mordecai, she doesn't reveal her heritage as a Jew. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Uh, Esther has her night with the king, and she is the one who pleases him most. So Xerxes makes her queen, and he has another big banquet to celebrate. Verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. As the story progresses, um, Mordecai hears about a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. He reports it to Esther, Esther reports it to the king, and it's recorded in the history books, verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the Book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Mordecai saves the king. But for some reason, Mordecai isn't rewarded. He, he isn't promoted. Instead, we're told, a man called Haman is promoted. Haman is an Agagite from the nation of Amalek. And the thing about Agagites is this. They've always hated Jews. Back in Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites, they were the first nation to attack Israel after they escaped from Egypt. When Israel became a kingdom, uh, their first king was a man called Saul. Like Mordecai, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And one of the first missions that God gave to King Saul was to destroy the Amalekites and their king, Agag. But Saul disobeyed. 
He spared King Agag, and that led to Saul's downfall. The, 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 the hatred, the enmity between the Benjamites among Israel and the, the Agagites among the Amalekites, that had been ongoing for, for more than 500 years. And now here's Haman, an Agagite, promoted over Mordecai, a Benjamite, straight after Mordecai has saved the king. No wonder then, Mordecai is miffed. He's annoyed. And so, he stubbornly refuses to bow down to Haman. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3 and verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. As you'd expect, Haman takes offence. Unlike a typical Agagite, he decides to attack and destroy not just Mordecai, but all the Jews. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the kingdom of Xerxes. It's the first month of the year. Haman cast lots, the, the, the Purim, cast lots to determine the most auspicious time to slaughter all the Jews. He, he effectively, effectively rolls two sixes, and so the lot falls onto the last month, the twelfth month of the year, chapter 3 and verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Haman gets the backing of King Xerxes, verse 11. The king said to Haman, do with the people as you please. And he sends out messengers to proclaim his decree. The end of verse 12. The end of verse 12. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Whoa. This, this is serious stuff. This, this could be the end for the Jewish people. This could be total genocide. All because Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. Uh, no wonder then that he and the Jews are devastated. Chapter 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai gets a message to Esther. He says, you've got to do something. It's time to step up. It's time to identify yourself as a Jew and you need to beg for our lives. Verse 8. Mordecai gave the messenger a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy 
and plead with him for her people. Thing is, though, there's a law. No one is allowed to go into the king's presence, not without an express invitation. The penalty is death. The only exception is if the king extends his scepter to you. But it's been five years now since Esther became queen. It's, it's been more than a month since Esther was invited into the king's presence. He's no doubt enamoured of, of other members of the harem by now. He may well be pleased to have an opportunity to have an excuse to kill Esther. So Esther thinks it's a bad idea. Verse 9. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she, she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. But Mordecai won't let her get away with it. He says, the Jews will be rescued. Now, notice Mordecai's confidence about this. One way or another, he says, the Jews will be rescued. But, he says, if Esther won't help, she and her family will die. And Mordecai says to Esther, maybe this is why you have become queen. Maybe this is your moment. Verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther calls on Mordecai and the people to fast for her. She takes her courage into her hands. She goes to the king and mercifully he doesn't kill her. Chapter 5 and verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And so Esther starts off the process of trying to convince the king to spare the Jews. She starts off by inviting him to a dinner with Haman. Then at that dinner, she invites them to another dinner the next day, at which time she says she will present her request. Now, as Haman heads home from the first banquet, he sees Mordecai again. Mordecai still won't bow. And so Haman builds a device a pole to, to execute him, to impale him the very next day. Verse 14. Haman's wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. All right. That's as far as we're going in the story this week. Can you see what's here so far? Uh, Esther is queen. Mordecai won't bow down to Haman. And so Haman has decided, with the backing of the Persian emperor, to slaughter all the Jews. Mordecai has, has asked Esther to help. Uh, 
he, he is confident that the Jews will be saved. He reckons Esther is the one to do it. He reckons this could be her moment. And so, with, with fear and trepidation, she's approached the emperor. What's going to happen? Will the Jews be saved? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment. Okay, interesting story. Question is, um, what do we do with it? How does this story apply to us? The key, I think, is to understand the situation here. Here in this story, there is every reason to doubt the survival of the Jews. I mean, they've already been exiled under Babylon, and now they're up against the most powerful empire in the history of the world. There is no possible way they can resist the Persian Empire. And, and the Jews in this story, they're not exactly what you call heroes. I mean, Esther is no hero. She has become the queen of a pagan empire. And how? By being the most pleasing sex partner for an uncircumcised Gentile. She, she lives among the Gentiles and she is indistinguishable. Esther hides her Jewish identity. No one even knows she's Jewish. There's no, there's no evidence that Esther follows God's food laws. I mean, not like Daniel and his friends. Do you remember they refused to eat the, 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 the unclean food of the court? There's no, there's no evidence that Esther follows God's law at all. And then when she's called on to save her people from being annihilated, she says no. She'd rather save her own skin than save her people. Esther is no hero. And Mordecai is not much better. He's no hero either. I mean, he was the one who advised Esther to hide her Jewish identity. And this, this whole thing with Haman, uh, not, not bowing to Haman, I mean, that looks like just sheer stubbornness and, and jealousy on Haman's part. Uh, Haman got promoted on Mordecai's part, I mean, because Haman got promoted and Mordecai didn't. Mordecai's jealous and he's stubborn and, and he's caused enormous trouble here. The most powerful empire in the world has decided to kill the Jews. These Jews, they're not exactly heroes. And one thing you'll notice as you read the book of Esther, there's no mention of God. God's name is not there. There's no, there's no prayer to God. There's no obedience to God's law. There is no mention of God at all. As you read this story, you might wonder if God even exists. Or you might wonder if he's, if he's finally given up on the Jews. I imagine that's what they were wondering. Either way, God is notably absent. There is every reason to doubt the survival of the Jews. At this point in the story, things are looking dire. And yet, did you notice Mordecai's confidence? There's no doubt in his mind. Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise. And did you notice Mordecai's question to Esther? 
Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this? So why was Mordecai so confident? And why would he think that all of the ordinary circumstances, the, the strange circumstances, even the sinful circumstances of Esther's life could be, could be all coming together for a reason? Why would he think that this is her moment? Well, God seems to be absent from the book of Esther. But of course, he's not absent at all, is he? And we know from looking at the rest of the Old Testament that, that, that God is sovereign over all of life. And we know from the rest of the Old Testament that God has made promises to these Jewish people. God has promised the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He said, do you remember from Genesis last year? He said, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Up against the most powerful empire the world has known. Weak and sinful characters. God seems to be absent. And yet Mordecai knows the truth. And so he is confident. And so he calls on Esther to step up and do what she needs to do. This is your moment. He says. About 18 months ago, I was at a restaurant. I was having dinner to celebrate my mum's birthday. We were sitting at a big round table at a Chinese restaurant. I was sitting next to my mum. And on the other side of her was her neighbour, I didn't know her neighbour, I just, just met her at the dinner table. And at one point in the conversation, my mum's neighbour, uh, she starts talking to me across my mum. I hear that you're a minister. My mum already looking like this. That's true, I said. Are you a Christian? She said, well, you know, I just recently got invited to go to a church and, and, and my daughter wants me to go, but I'm not really sure if I should. See, the thing is, I'm divorced and, and you know, I've got a new marriage and, and, and I don't feel like I'd be accepted among people like that. Sudden silence. <laughs> All eyes at the table are on me. What am I supposed to do? It's my mum's birthday. Am I really going to ruin it for her? Am I really going to embarrass her in front of all her friends and neighbours? What would you have done? Friends, in many ways, my situation, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of that of Esther and Mordecai. I mean, here I am among, among people who reject and oppose Jesus. I was, I was scared. I, I didn't want to stand out. I wasn't even sure what the right thing was to do. Like Esther and Mordecai, I am no hero. I'm, I'm, I'm sinful and weak. Um, my family know that better than anybody. Like Esther and Mordecai, I, I live in a world where I, I can't see God, where God seems to be absent. It's not exactly, I can't like snap my fingers and turn water into wine to, to prove God to these people. I can't, I can't show God to anyone. I'm not expecting any miracles. 
God seems absent. I feel weak. They seem strong. So what should I do? What would you do? What have you done in similar situations? If you've read Esther, the answer is clear, isn't it? Despite all appearances, God is not absent. God is in complete control. And he has made promises. Promises not just to the Jews. He's made promises that everyone who relies on Jesus will be forgiven and given a place in heaven. And the Bible says this. Get this. The Bible says that God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. Do you remember that from Ephesians last year? God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. Now, God may seem to be absent, but he isn't. He wasn't in Esther's, in Esther's day, and he isn't today. God is in complete control, and he is at work in the ordinary circumstances of life. He's at work in getting that neighbour to that table with me. And he bravely calls on me to serve him. That moment at that dinner, that could be that lady's one chance to hear about how Jesus offers to, to forgive and accept and welcome sinners. And who knows if God hasn't put me at that table at that very moment for that very purpose. Of course, God will do his thing. He doesn't need me. But friends, this could be my moment. This could be my moment to do that work that God has prepared in advance for me to do. This could be my moment. So what do you do? You have to speak up, don't you? Not because it's going to be easy. Not because it's going to make everyone happy. Not because you're strong or, or righteous or anything like that. Not because it won't ruin your mum's birthday and have her stand up and walk away in disgust. But because God is in control. And this could be your moment. Friends, can you see the application? Let, let's learn from Mordecai and Esther. Be confident in God. Even if he feels absent, he's not. He's in total control. Be confident in God. He's made promises. And you could have the extraordinary privilege of being part of those promises in the lives of people. So be confident. And, and friends, seize the moment. Seize the moment to bravely serve Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you are in control of this world and of our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have prepared good works in advance for us to walk in. Thank you that we have the extraordinary privilege of being able to speak your word to people and be part of your rescue plan. Heavenly Father, will you help us to be confident in you and in your sovereignty and in your promises Help us to be brave, to take up those moments where we should serve you bravely and faithfully. Help us to do this, we pray, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name.